So there's been a lot of doom and gloom recently in the world of tech with layoffs and other sorts of uh, bad news stories out there. So on today's episode, I wanted to bring in someone that's going to make me feel better about the future and uh, be more optimistic about it. Hi, everybody. I'm Keith Shaw, host of Today in Tech. And on today's show, we are going to be more optimistic and happy. And that's why I'm wearing the Red Sox uh, hoodie, because, you know, being a Red Sox fan, it's always about optimism. And then eventually it comes, turns into pessimism. But um, my guest today is going to make me feel a lot better about the world and technology in the future. And uh, he is Justin Bean, author of the book, What Could Go Right, which explores how people can ditch cynicism and envision an ideal world and be empowered by Justin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. So, um, you, you know, in addition to being an author, you're, you're a consultant and you do a lot of other things to, to help tech companies kind of help envision this future where things could go better than, than, than what are going on, correct? Yeah, that's right. I work with a lot of uh, Fortune 500s and startups, mainly around sustainability and how we make this transition to a more sustainable economy and helping them understand the uh, the business imperative, but also the business opportunity and forging a roadmap towards that that better future for them and being a part of the the broader better future. OK, so uh, I'm going to hit you with the, the really hard, open ended question right in the beginning. Uh, in general, do you feel like the world right now is is in a good place or in a bad place? You don't have to pick one or the other. You can pick both. You, you know, what's your current mood of the world? Maybe in the last four to five years. Yeah, I, I think uh, with with many of these questions, where it's either A or B, it's often C all the way through Z. Right? There's right. a million perspectives there, um, but I think the world is in transition, and that can create challenges in some places. And some people are having a really rough time with it, understandably, and others are seeing the opportunity in that change. And I think when we zoom out and look at the bigger picture and look at the longer term, we'll realize that we actually live in one of the best times that humanity has ever experienced. We have much lower rates of, of war and interpersonal violence. Uh, we've got much higher rates of education, availability, availability of information, overall material abundance, uh, communications around the world and to our communities and better, uh, rates of compassion for each other and acceptance of our differences of an embracement of our diversity. And um, I, I think if we were to go back, you know, 100, 150 years, maybe go back to the old West and yeah. talk about, you know, where the future might be, they might consider it this naive utopia and kick us out on our keister and challenge us to a, a duel at noon. Okay. Uh, but I think that perspective helps us to see how good we actually have it. Yeah. And so, you know, when we talked before you, um, I, you know, I was trying to frame this show as like how to become a tech optimist. And you quickly were like, you don't like that term um, being an opt. Is it, is it just the optimism term or tech optimist? Like what, what's what, why do you not like that term and how would you reframe it? Yeah, I, I think often the word optimism gets seen as naive or Pollyanna optimism. That's just being positive for its own sake. Right. Um, and I, I don't think that's what this is about, or at least what I'm talking about, especially in the book. When I ask what could go right, uh, instead of thinking everything will go fine. And so therefore, what does that future look like? You know, I'm optimistic about some things and I'm pessimistic about others. But really, when it comes down to what I'm going to do about it to help build a better future, I need to start with the ideal that I can envision to give myself something to work towards. 
And if we do that as individuals, as businesses, as a society, it actually gives us somewhere to collaborate on a roadmap and steps moving forward to get to. So it, it's, you know, there there are psychological and emotional benefits, right? Your your brain is more active and focused and in, involved and creative when you're envisioning an ideal and you're being more creative versus when you're in fear or thinking about uh, doom and gloom or you're pessimistic or just considering dystopias that cause fear that actually reduces your your brain's capacity to be creative and be, be open and see connections. It's more about fight or flight and getting away from it, which makes you effective in the very short term. Yeah. But over the long term, this marathon that we need to run uh, requires us to be more creative and, and more energetic. And that's what that mindset does. Right. And, and this in is, addition it, to the practical and this book is not a self-help book. Like you're not, you're not t- telling everybody to be like, don't worry, be happy. And, uh, you know, like all of your problems will be solved if you just were happier about life. Right. And, because yeah. that, that's not what this book is about. It's, you know, so um, it, it's, I think you do define some of the different attitudes that people can have. And that includes being, you know, there is a, uh, a point for cynicism, right? There is, there is a, you know, a time and a place for it. Um, talk about sort of the three areas where you, you know, people sort of are at the, at the moment. Yeah. Um, so you're right. This, this book starts out with that. And I think it's important to frame the importance of that mindset and thinking in terms of what could go right. Um, but that's just the first part. The second part is just getting really practical and looking at what are these tech and social trends that are aligning to create enormous opportunities for startups and for corporates and for people in their professional careers to play a part in making this world more sustainable and equitable and more abundant. And not just because they think it's the right thing to do, but because there's an enormous business opportunity in transitioning every part of the global economy to one that's greener and more inclusive. Okay. Um, And then the third part is really practicing what we preach and taking Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And instead of applying it to the individual, as we do in Psychology 101, we apply it to society and think about what it might look like if we were able to meet the physiological needs of society through things like the energy system, uh, safety and security, self-esteem, all the way up to self-actualization needs for a society, which was a, a really fun um, part of the book to write and interviewed some really interesting people yeah, to get those yeah. perspectives. And um, in the book, you talk about sort of um, that, the you know, in a lot of instances in our world, for example, we have a lot of zero-sum games. And, and I know you quoted uh, Simon Sinek is the other author who, who's written about this as well, um, mm-hmm. where, you know, in most games and, and even sports, you have a winner and a loser. And so it's a zero-sum, like someone has to win and someone has to lose. And and you're, you're saying that we need to do more about infinite games, but not necessarily, you know, in terms of playing it. Can you sort of describe the difference of what you mean between you know between an infinite game and a, and a finite game? I guess. Yeah, sure, and yeah, you're right. Simon Sinek came out with a, a great book called Finite and Infinite Games. Um, there's another one by the same title, a different author. I can't remember his name right now, but um, there's it, it's a really interesting concept that I think is helpful for us in this period of time. So, um, finite games, as you said, are often zero sum. They're competitor based. Do am I winning against the other person? They have a boundary and an ending. So you want to win the game and you want to finish the game. Um, infinite games instead are ones that are meant to continue play. And the goal of it is to continue it and make it the best game that it can be. It has competitors and it has finite games within it often, mm-hmm. but that's not really the point of the game. 
And so I think there are a lot of great examples of how infinite games or thinking in terms of infinite games can help us maintain perspective and also be more effective in the in the market and in our lives. So people often use, you know, athletic um, uh, analogies for this, right? So if your uh, if your health and athleticism is based on beating other people, um, you know, you'll probably win some competitions in the short term. But when no one's around and you're in training, yeah, you have no reason really to to continue on. Um, and you know, you'll take shortcuts and cut corners and and you might cheat. But when you keep that infinite game in mind, uh, it's it's all about improving your effectiveness. So let's think about it in terms of business, right? Um, if we think about a couple of case studies like Blockbuster, <clears throat> Blockbuster got stuck in a finite game of thinking it was competing with other, you know, VHS video stores, right? Uh, because that's what was available in the market, right? And so they were trying to beat, you know, mom and pop video stores or other major chains that were playing in this this one particular game. They lost sight of the fact that they were an entertainment company and they were an information company. And so when uh, when innovations like the internet came along and Netflix and Hulu and some of these other you know uh, everyday name platforms came along, they ate their lunch and Blockbuster went out of business because they lost sight of the bigger picture and the infinite game of what their consumers and customers were coming to them for. Instead, they got trapped in you know quarterly performance in uh, product performance of VHS, for right. example. And not thinking about where the world might be going and seeing the opportunities in that change. That's a great example. Do you have some uh, examples of companies that have been able to um, kind of survive this and, and become more of an infinite game player in, in, in the world of business? Yeah, I think um, some of the some of the titans <laughs> that we see out there. So uh, you know, Google, Microsoft, I think is uh, one that doesn't get enough credit. Um, and I think Tesla's is trying to play an infinite game. Okay. Uh, Elon Musk recently said, or, you know, someone said that Elon Musk said, right, in the whole gossip sphere, yeah, that he doesn't mind if Tesla goes bankrupt if, uh, EVs succeed and someone else makes a better car. Right. Right. And, you know, shareholders generally say, oh my God, I better sell this <laughs> stock because that means this company's going to go under. Right. But I think I think what he meant by that, if I can interpret what he's saying, is he's playing more of this infinite game. So Tesla came out and radically changed the landscape for personal transportation. But that's not really what they're about. They're about electrifying the economy. And so they see opportunities in electrified robotics, in trucking, in you know, all kinds of different areas that aren't just creating a you know, one type of car. Um, and then when you look at a Microsoft, they've been around forever, right? They, you know, sold us the original Office Suite. They've moved into a variety of different areas, and most recently with ChatGTP, mm -hmm. and seeing the opportunity of artificial intelligence to assist people in creating more content and better content and uh, funneling information, <clears throat> large amounts of information, and synthesizing it for us so that we can draw better conclusions and communicate better, which is more what they're there for, right? right. It's not completely about Word and PowerPoint and Excel, although, although those are great and standard tools, it's about helping us to communicate and collaborate in, in new ways. Well, even in between those two, those two um, examples, they also then made a move to the cloud and provided mm -hmm. cloud services and moved all of their applications to the cloud, even though it was 
potentially hurting their licensing business in, in terms of the software that was on the computer. So yeah, yeah. I, I guess Microsoft, you know, and then of course they've got the Xbox, but you know, that's, that's a separate, <laughs> I guess, division. Um, There's all kinds of examples. Yeah. yeah. It's great. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I think that, that that companies that need to think about that's the whole word of the pivot thing, right? If they if they see something, they can pivot their company to to work towards that infinite game, correct? And yeah, and, yeah, and it's the innovator's dilemma, yeah. right? Creative destruction right. of recognizing when your you know cash cow or your you know base product offering or suite <clears throat> is becoming commoditized, and now others can create something of similar value. How do you play into the future? and leverage your strengths to innovate and create the next that that provides more value, not just continue competing in the zero-sum game to like beat others at the ability to create a, a you know Word text document. Yeah, would, would it help if we had more sort of infinite games in the sort of the board game and entertainment space where we did things like cooperative board games that where, you know, the group uh, of players work towards a common goal um, and you could still have sort of competitions within that. I, you know what I think is a great example of that is Dungeons and Dragons. I don't know if you play that, but I mean... If you're a trinket, of course you've probably played. But you know, it's like people. It's 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 four people or five people sitting around a table, and there is a goal for us as players to sort of defeat the bad guy and and win. Mm-hmm. But like the you know, I'm in a group that the, you know the campaign's been going on for two plus years, and it's mainly because we only play once a week. But it, it it does feel like you're sort of working in a longer sort of thing rather than just you know oh roll you know roll the dice and whatever it is you win or lose type of a thing. Yeah, I agree. I think there's an emergence of more games like this, yeah. right? There's there's classic games like Monopoly, and I think that's where our sort of traditional mindsets have been shaped. In the board is finite, your job is to conquer everything, right. all property, build hotels, and and you know beat the other person into submission. And the world requires us to think differently today. And so <clears throat> games like Dungeons and Dragons, and then I'll, you know, I'll up the ante on the nerdiness scale here with uh, a great game called Terraforming oh, Mars. Oh, good. I'm glad you brought that um, up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so this is a, you know, very complicated game. Me and my girlfriend actually bought it for me for, uh, for Christmas one year. And, uh, you know, we spent a good 30, 45 minutes just trying to understand how to play the game. And I think that's one yeah. of the challenges of some of these infinite games is they are more complex and require more context, and there's more nuance and and more um, inputs and factors in the game. But this game is basically about settling Mars over multiple generations. And so you as a player are a corporation with certain strengths and certain access to resources, and your goal is to uh, help terraform the planet as much as possible while competing for space. So there's still competitions, there are still finite games within it. Right. But if the planet of Mars in this game isn't able to be uh, terraformed, meaning create enough green space, enough water, and uh, create an actual living biosphere that everything depends on, then everything's dead. And there's no reason to play the game anyway. Right. And the businesses won't survive. But if we're able to balance, and I think this is a more accurate approximation of reality, that we live within a biosphere and an ecology that supplies free resources like solar energy and oxygen and water. Uh, and our, our more finite games are about processing those inputs and providing new value to other human beings. But if we lose sight of that broader game, you know, we all know where that's going. And, and I think the you know, stats are clear that our civilization is not one that can last it is just mathematically impossible for it to last 
if it's just based on unsustainable infinite growth. Right, right. Uh, so we need to operate within that field. And once we figure out how to do so, that doesn't actually restrict our abundance. It gives us more abundance than ever and more widespread abundance, not just in small pockets. All right. And, and I, you know, I love anybody that says a Monopoly is a, is a bad game. So I, I am, <laughs> we refuse to play Monopoly in our house. We also refuse to play Sorry and uh, The Trouble, where you you actively try to you know hurt your opponent, because my kids <clears throat> forget it. Like That's why we like the cooperative games. Uh, I'm going to switch gears a little bit here and um, go back to sort of some of the causes for why there might be cynicism in the world and why people think that, that we're in a bad place rather than a good place. And it's basically because of the Internet and all of the information that's now available at our fingertips. Um, and, and this is sort of the same question, but, but with, the, frame, with the, um, the lens of the Internet. Is, is having all of this information at our fingertips a good thing or a bad thing? Um, I can give you two examples. For example, um, the Internet will shine light on injustices around the world. If something bad happens in another part of the world, you know, either we, we go in and we face that injustice and, and do something about it, or in a disaster scenario, we go and help. Whereas maybe like 30, 40 years ago, we wouldn't have known about some of these incidents unless it was a, a really, really big disaster. Uh, but on the other hand, um, oh, so so that's, you know, where it's... But on the other hand, you also then have doom and gloom where you think, oh my gosh, uh, you know, a, a child uh, was, was abducted in Arizona. Uh, I better, like, not let my kids go outside for the next month. Like, so you see that balance between the good and the bad? It, and what do yeah, you think? And, yeah, and let me be clear. Like, I'm not dismissing the fact that we face enormous challenges. Right. We face enormous climate challenges, we face enormous social challenges, and we need to be very clear that these are real games with real consequences, and there are real human um, tragedies around the world. Um, but th those human tragedies are not new. And as you said, social media is shining the light on these things so we can actually see them, which in my mind is a good thing because that tells us what's wrong and so what we can do about it. If we go to a doctor and the doctor has no ability to use x-rays, can't have a stethoscope, you know, there's no MRIs, they can't even diagnose the problem. And so it's important for us to recognize that these are problems. I'm not saying we need to dismiss them, but the fact that we can see them more clearly and more widespread than ever before is a good thing to drive change towards something better. And so I think in the US we've, you know, we've seen, um, you know, a massive wave of, of awareness about, uh, you know, from Black Lives Matter, for example, right, of the abuses that take place that African-Americans experience at higher rates than people who look like us. Right. Uh, and that isn't anything new. That's something that's been going on for a very long time. And the fact that we can see it and we can empathize with people as, uh, as other people that are experiencing this, it's not just a statistic gets us more involved in solving the problem. And I think that's a really good thing. Um, the danger is that we see each other as, um, as again, not just competitors, but adversaries, and that we can't see each other as part of the same human family and that we just have different sources of information. Right, and, 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 that, and that's where it seems like po um, politics is for the last 20-something years. It's it's always been in us versus them. It's, it's you know, the, whatever government is in charge seems to just, all right, we're just going to have to create an enemy so that we can sort of... Uh, 
gather our base and go after the other side. And it's very zero sum on that one. And I don't yeah. want to ask you right now. It's like, how are you going to solve that, Justin? Because I have no <laughs> idea. And, and I'm, I, I just think that if people thought more about, you know, listening to the other side and sort of agreeing to disagree rather than just getting on Twitter and going, you stink and you're awful and you're, you know, you're horrible, horrible. And I'm going to cancel you and, and we should censor you. It's like, that's not the answer. Cause that's just going to divide us even more and more. How do we get back from where we are now? Like so far apart into something where we're at least having came the same conversations. Like yeah. I'm, I'm stymied by half of this half the time. Cause I see it with yeah, my friends, my friends are just like, Oh my God, this is the, he's the worst person in the world. Yeah. Like, okay, well, I can't go anywhere with that. Right. You know, <laughs> do you think you can, do you think that people can get to that point or, or do we, are we going to be dismissed as, oh, you're just living, you're just a Pollyanna or, or not to disparage Pollyanna. It was probably a great movie at one point. Um, <laughs> like, how do you, how do you get it so that we don't become like, oh, you're just one of those touchy feely earthy people that will, that <laughs> like, what do you do? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's a combination of things. And so, you know, we've seen this, I think, an antiquated model of politics, which is us versus them. Mm -hmm. And people who are in power, in some cases, just don't know what else to do. They want to rally the base. They want to play by the old world games, not recognizing that there are better paths forward and that those games are actually destabilizing and, and leading to challenges in, you know, Add to that the fact that foreign actors and internal actors have gotten extremely sophisticated at disinformation. And what was initially a huge spread of new information from distributed reporters via the internet and blogs um, became a tool for disinformation and for destabilizing societies through that type of uh, approach of division and conquering. Um, <clears throat> so what do we do about it? And I think one thing we need to do is be aware of how that's played. And so there are sites like Ground News. I actually built a site called Spectrum Report that tries to break apart that information for us to process it better. So step one is processing. Uh -huh. So one thing is to break the echo chambers, look on both sides and try to hear what information the other side is hearing so that you maybe not agree with what others are saying, but you understand how they got to the conclusions they got to. Right. One of the scariest things I heard you know, several years ago when all this started was I, it seems like these people are living in a different world. I have no idea what world they're living in. Right. And that to me says there was no um, access or there was no digestion of information from other sides. So that second thing to do is see what are the narratives underneath those, that information um, that's being pushed through those stories. Some of those, some of the stories that are pushed are actually true. They're just selective and they're trying to drive a narrative. And then the third part is fact-checking those narratives and trying to figure out what's true and false about those narratives, not the particular stories. And then how much, um, so one of the things I built into this website was AI sentiment analysis to figure out how much emotion of different types are you ingesting through these stories? Mm -hmm. So how much outrage, how much joy, how much anger, sadness are you ingesting? And then you can see what your limbic resonance is with all these things, because you might just be ingesting just like, a sugar addiction, you're ingesting outrage so much that you're getting 
pumped to this point. And I think that's part of the problem. Yeah. So and, and, and the other part of the problem from the media side too is that like you know bad news sells, and that's that's been uh, you know around since the before newspapers were even invented, or what you know during the time of that. It's like you sell more newspapers if you have something like um, you know man bites dog <clears throat> or you know a dog attack rather than hey everything's great. Like who's gonna buy that newspaper, right? So nobody. It, it's, yeah. it's been it's been ingrained in our culture probably for at least two hundred years, right? Yeah, you know, so if not longer, yeah, yeah, you've got the town criers and all of that. But I think another part of the solution, just to fi- to finish that thought, yeah, um, is not just the processing of information objectively, but in in communication with each other, trying to see what the actual what the person is actually needing to say and wanting to say behind um, behind what they're saying. Okay, right. So there's often a legitimate need or a legitimate. Um, question behind what they're saying and trying to find what's true about their what they're saying and then reiterating that part of it and saying okay i hear what you're saying and i agree with this part of it right right like sure we don't want the government to be a giant bloated mess that wastes our money and doesn't spend on anything meaningful let's let's all agree on that and right. i think that's an easy but we we can't just stop there we have to look at what the programs are that they're spending on and prioritize what's important and then figure out if there is actually a lot of waste and if so, where, and then actually get down to brass tacks about what it is we're actually talking about. And that creates a path forward for us to work together towards a common goal. And that's another reason we need that ideal is that if we can agree on, we want clean air, we don't want you know chemicals spewing at children's face level in our streets and causing asthma, right? Child asthma is much higher in, in many cities, partially because of the, you know, the fumes from, from cars and other vehicles. Um, I think when we place it that way, and when we talk about energy independence, right, that we don't want to be dependent on foreign countries for, uh, for energy, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there are ways of, of looking at it that we, we want the same things. We're just being told that we actually live in different worlds and we want different things. <clears throat> so when we can break those barriers, then we can have a conversation about moving forward. All right, and so, kind of yeah. let go of all the outrage. Okay, so we are a technology sort of uh, podcast show. I want to bring in some technologies that 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 you feel are are valuable towards towards, towards getting us to the the better future. Um, talk about some of the the the, the techs that you like and and that and that are not going to just sort of be overhyped and then you know they're going to go away. Uh, do you want me to start you off, or you want to just do sure? You want to go? Yeah, go for it. All right. So uh, obviously, artificial intelligence is is one of the big ones that you talk about. Um, you must be are you you pretty excited about kind of what's going on with ChatGPT? Because it seems like a roller coaster. Like one week it's great, the, the other week it's awful. Like that's it's just going back and forth. What what's your thought on sort of the new style of artificial intelligence, or do you see it as something different from what's currently going on? Yeah, I think it's I think it's really interesting and. You know, all of these technologies are getting overhyped, right? There's the hype cycle that Gartner talks yeah. about. I think it's very true for any of this, right? Big data was overhyped, but it's actually extremely important in everything we do today. Um, analytics and all of that, which we all know. Um, artificial intelligence, I think, is a really interesting one um, where we've had this sort of hype cycle about, you know, AI is going to take over the world and it's going to enslave us and we're going to be in a Terminator scenario. <clears throat> which is possible, but I don't think it's terribly probable. And when AI is the most effective is when it's in combination with human beings. And I think that's what's exciting about chat GTP is that it's it's bringing AI to the masses. 
in a, in a lot of ways. So in a lot of cases, artificial intelligence has been used either behind the scenes or in very specialized applications. For example, you know, detecting lung cancer or, you know, uh, looking at cardio maps, right, to help doctors to to find a disease and diagnose something or for Google to understand what ads to serve up. Yep. Right. And so it's helped them be more effective companies with things like chat GTP. Uh, we're now able as you know, anyone with an Internet connection to ask questions that allow an AI or ask an AI to search the entire entirety of human knowledge and not just to serve us up links and sources, but to give us a concise and thoughtful answer to a question and also to help us generate content. So that will help you know scientists to do more and better research and focus on doing the actual science as opposed to all of that upfront work of data cleansing and data integration and all, all of that that leads to the last 5% of making cool charts and graphs that actually right. you know, convey the right. information. <clears throat> and then incorporating that into a lot of things that we can do. All right, uh, just to talk about, so this was an interesting one, uh, blockchain. Uh, if you can sort of uh, consolidate blockchain down into something that, that <laughs> I understand, because it still goes over my head, and I've been, I've been seeing this for the last 10 years, Plus, right, and and I I just think that the people that want to promote blockchain have not done a really great job of explaining its value. Yeah, I think this is similar to the internet, right? When the internet first came out, um, everybody was saying, you know, AOL, AOL is the future, not realizing <laughs> that the internet was what it was all about, right? And you know, I love engineers, but I think uh, you know a hype cycle that's led by engineers often uh, sputters. Right, because it's not communicating to people about how they can actually leverage it and what value it brings to them. It's more about, well, it's a Web3 layer or it uses this, you know, this different protocol or very technical terms, which it's all over all of our heads. Right, right. right. Um, but I think there are very practical examples of how blockchain can be used to create these smart contracts and automate agreements between people and automate your um uh, authentication and verification across multiple platforms. And so, and what I'm really excited about are things like distributed autonomous organizations and uh, autonomous economic agents. And I'll explain those two. So, okay. Yeah. You're going to um, have to, cause you just, you're about to lose me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so I think distributed autonomous organizations are really interesting. So think about um, the fact that many corporations have a very heavy management structure and are run in hierarchical ways, and that's a necessity, right? There needs to be a decision maker. There needs to be someone who's you know deciding what's happening. Um, as we move towards these more distributed models, uh, imagine an Uber that is owned by and managed by <clears throat> rules that are set in the network and then owned by the not only the drivers, but the passengers themselves. So this is almost like an ESOP, like an employee-owned company, mm -hmm. right? When you go to a, a co-op grocery store and the employees have partial ownership of the store, they're more excited about making the store successful. They're generally nicer to the customers and they see the infinite game in growing that business, not just keeping their nine to five job as a, a checker. Um, and so what this does is something similar for a lot of businesses is it brings everyone into that network. So you as an Uber driver actually own part of that network. And as it grows, your share grows in value. So it's like owning stock in the company. But I think what's really exciting is not only the drivers, but the customers are actually now going to own part of the store. 
which is really counterintuitive, right? Because yeah. the customers are supposed to be giving us money as a business to grow it. But it's all about the network effect. So the value of Facebook, the value of Twitter are in the size of the network. And all of us that are creating content for free on those platforms are creating the value of Facebook and of Twitter. The company itself is doing some management and making sure the back end works. And that's a really valuable um, role to play. But imagine if you were uh, not only compensated, you know, a little bit for every post that gets a lot of engagement, but as more people joined, your stock increased in it. So it's almost like you're getting stock in the companies that you're using. Um, so anyway, I think that's really exciting. That's more like a distributed autonomous organization. Okay. And something that, uh, and this is what blockchain and, and blockchain would enable this, or is like, how do we get blockchain into this, this, this sort of idea? Yeah, blockchain enables that and things like Ethereum that do smart contracts are able to, you know, set the rules of that game. And so as others interact with it, uh, that's how those smart contracts are exchanged between, let's say, drivers and passengers and then others who are maybe renting vehicles or providing maintenance. And so there's these specific contracts that go into effect and those rules are understood and, and played by <clears throat> the people in that network. So it requires less of that management. Yeah. Structure. Does, does blockchain sort of get lumped into the whole NFT um, kind of experiment and some of the crypto coin things? And they, maybe that's why people are, are doubtful about the whole blockchain thing because they were lumped in with this or is it, or am I just assuming that that, that was the case? No, I think yeah. NFTs are just one example of how that can work. And, you know, it's again, this is something that's had multiple hype cycles. Yeah. Right. Oh boy, yeah. You know, Booms and busts. Yeah. Everybody gets on Bitcoin and then it collapses and they say, this is the end. Blockchain's <laughs> over. Right. Everybody gets on Ethereum and then it crashes and oh my God, it's over. And then, yeah. you know, FTX and everything else. Right. Then this will continue for a while, I think. Um, and then NFTs actually are still serving a purpose. So I actually had a really interesting conversation with a guy um, this week who runs a um, a platform for uh, for tools and visualizations and art that goes into the metaverse and into digital worlds. And so uh, artists are creating these three-dimensional homes or moving dinosaurs or characters or tools that can be used in the metaverse and in the digital world. And those are you know owned through NFTs and they're able to be sold and verified to people who want to incorporate them into their virtual world and into the metaverse. So I think that's, <clears throat> and then that metaverse runs off of uh, coins like Mana or Matic or Ethereum as coins that you can exchange value to, to purchase things and US dollars. Right. Um, but as those grow in adoption, um, those networks of, you know, Matic and Mana and Ethereum will grow in value. And so it's an interesting example of how we'll be using these in the future to, yeah, I've got my, I've got my real world house and I've got my digital house, right? It's just like my Facebook profile. Yep. And then here's my LinkedIn profile. It's another platform, right? So we'll have the professional metaverse and we'll have the personal metaverse and, you know, family metaverse and all of those will have their own digital elements, which we'll buy and sell from each other and, um, create markets around. Yeah, I think you know you brought up metaverse, and that was another one I was going to ask you about. It, it feels like you're you're uh, pro metaverse. Um, I think part of the problem is that no one really's been able to define what they mean by metaverse. In one in one definition, it's AR and VR, and we're going to be all on a couch and just you know in Second Life Part Two or or the the 
uh, Ready Player One universe where it's like all of these different game worlds sort of came together in this one big omniverse. And um, a lot of people, a lot of geeks love sci-fi and, you know, books like that that created these worlds. But on the other hand, you know, another company says, oh, no, the metaverse is used for digital twin in manufacturing and 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 replicating. You know, you, you got a design of the car and then you make the car and you use them to sort of compare. I think the problem is, is that they've never really come up with a good definition and then hype the heck out of it before most people understood sort of what what it means. I think the, the thing I like about metaverse, and I don't know if you would agree with this, would be being able to create something in a digital uh, world, like a video game or something, you've created your character and the look and the feel, and then having that ability to then take that model and print it via 3D printing into something you can now keep in the in the physical world. And the interaction between that, I, I find fascinating because, um, you know, half the time I'm designing something in my virtual world, but then I can't do anything with it in the in the real world. Um, it, is that part of it too? Or is it like explain, you know, do we need a better definition of metaverse or web yeah. three, right? That could be the other one. We do. Yeah. What is the internet? Right? Like it's all about it's nuance, everything, right? right? The internet created all of these different opportunities. And early on, we we're all trying to figure out what it all means and where it's all going, but it was going everywhere. Right. It was going to e-commerce. It was going to chat rooms. It was going to email. It was going to all different ways of, of leveraging it. And I think it's, it's just a tool and we don't know yet. I, and I agree that we're ahead of our skis on the messaging and, mm -hmm. and some of that. Um, but I think it's further along than most people think. And it's something that will be a tool that's available to us, just like we use Zoom and just like we use uh, Teams. Um, you know, we, we might go to a digital concert with friends at some point right with our with our avatars and some people will like that and other people won't and there will be addictions and there needs to be addiction treatment for these types of things um and and it can be used in in really good ways i heard someone that was using it for end of life treatment for people who could you know despite the fact they were bedridden they could go to everest base camp and right. you know talk with a tibetan monk that would help them with meditation and acceptance of of where they're at in their life and that's really powerful. That's an extremely powerful tool that isn't just about escapism and addiction to a, you know, a different world. It's about leveraging all of the technology and the tools that we have available to us to help each other live better lives. All right. And, and so, uh, you, you know, the book tackles a lot of other uh, heavy topics in terms of ways to get to that, that, that cool future that we all would hope that we want to do. I, I certainly don't want to live in a post-apocalyptic world, despite, you no. know, all of the popularity of those types of shows. I want to live in it, but I also don't want to live in a utopia either. I think, obviously, we don't, I don't think we've realized that that is impossible either. Um, so, how does one person sort of then make a difference? If I so I can change my attitude and become and, and say to myself, "All right, Keith, you're going to stop being as much of a cynic as much as possible." Um, I am still Generation X, and so that's sort of ingrained <laughs> into my personality. Um, but I'm going to try to do this. I'm going to become you know more positive and 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 try to you know work towards a better tomorrow for my kids and the grandkids and all that other stuff. But I'm I'm still only one person. Like how many? people does this take before we can get to that goal? Because we're never going to get everybody to feel this way. And it's always, you know, you're always going to have the cynics and some, and some greedy people that will try to exploit, you know, all of this. What's the next step? How do you get from, you know, one person to, you know, a movement, so to speak, without calling it a movement? Because then you get accused of being a cult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no cults, please. Okay, um, good. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, keep the cynic, like keep that sarcastic humor and the cynical humor. I think it's super fun and it often calls out the problems that need to be called out. But then the question is, what are you going to do about it? Right. And it's easy to be an armchair cynic and just criticize what's going on, always look for what's wrong and always think, oh, here's all the ways this technology goes wrong. But I think tech dystopianism is just as naive as tech utopianism. Right. And so explain, what, able yeah, explain do, what you mean by tech dystopianism. Yeah. Um, you know, I have friends that are, you know, similar in that way that every time something new comes out, they just want to tell me all the ways it's going to go wrong and destroy society and people and the environment and everything else. And I don't disagree with some of their arguments, but I think they're being blinded to all of the opportunity there. And then granted, there are people who are more on the marketing and PR side that maybe only talk about the positive elements. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I think we as people need to have a balanced perspective that takes these risks into account and then says, this isn't how it's going to go. We're all playing a role in this every day of every day of the year um, with our lives of how we use it, how we talk about it and how we implement it in business. <clears throat> so let's be aware of the risks, but let's figure out how we can best use this and work towards that future while trying to avoid those risks. And I think that's the that's the main point there is what are you going to do about it, right? Like if, if you want to just talk about it and and right. do nothing else, then it doesn't tell me that you're actually interested in the outcome. It's more about being right. Right. So <clears> is, <throat> is it more about then sort of like starting small and sort of working on your own little personal inner circle of people and sort of started convincing them that way? Um, friends helping friends, so to speak, and building up a, a more pot. Like, because again, I always believe, that, and then there's another thing that I would always believe is that if you surround yourselves with um, positive people, you'll become more positive. If you surround yourself mm -hmm. with negative people, then you're gonna you just you're gonna hate everything, right? Isn't and that yeah. with, without sounding you know like a cult leader, that's that's it's true, right? Yeah. Yes. I mean, seek perspective. Yeah. Um, and so I think there's there's an awareness component to it. What are we sharing with each other and how do we react when someone shares a really terrible story? We, we can't just dismiss it outright because oftentimes it's it's a real risk. Yeah. But we also have to bring the other side here into the conversation where we say, but what if we used it for this while taking those risks into account? And then we can use it in our career. Like if you're look, it depends on what you do. Right. So you're doing great work here spreading awareness about all kinds of different topics and technology and <clears throat> you know having a conversation around how technology can go right is a is a great action right and then people who are professionals that are choosing their careers and what job they take next they can choose ones that are more in the service of sustainability and equity and or bring sustainability and equity into the conversations they're having at work and into the strategies that they roll out with their startups and really build businesses that are solving a real problem. We don't need another sock delivery app. Right. You know, we don't need, you know, so we need quarters for laundry, but like, you know, that's not the biggest issue in the world for most people. Right. 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 And I think the fact that people have moved out of during the pandemic, um, city centers like San Francisco and New York, which are lovely places. I love them to death. Um, but moved in the, all these entrepreneurs have moved into the Midwest and the Southeast and all across the world. And I think those entrepreneurs are now seeing new problems and seeing more meaningful problems that they can solve. And through that, creating new innovations that lead us down a better path that's more inclusive and solves more problems. So as a professional, as an entrepreneur, you know, whatever you're doing, have that in right. your lens and balance out that cynicism with 
the opportunities and how you can do something positive about it. All right, uh, Justin, we've got, we're kind of out of time now. You know, there's more in the book. So please, you know, if you want, um, it's a great book. And uh, where can people get it, uh, Justin? Sure. Uh, it's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, anywhere you buy books. Um, what could go right? Uh, designing our ideal future to emerge from continual crises to a thriving world. It's oh, you, kind of a mouthful. Yeah. You memorized <laughs> the subhead. Awesome. All right, Justin, <laughs> thanks for being on the show today. Yeah, thanks. Thank you so much for having me. Keith. All right. And that's all the time we've got for today's episode. Don't forget to like the video, subscribe to the channel and add any comments uh, you have below and uh, join us every week for new episodes of Today in Tech. Have a great day and we'll see you next time.